we're doing. But also it can mean something else. It can, it can mean not that they're watching us, but that they are witnesses to us by their lives. In other words, we look to their example and they are witness to, to conquering faith. They are a witness to us, an encouragement in the sense that we look to how they conquered and how they persevered, and, and it's a witness for us to do the same by seeing. It's, it's, it's uh, not that they're seeing something by their lives, looking down on us, but that they're telling something. A witness can be somebody who tells something. He is a witness to something. And I think the latter is what this text means, that there is... A great cloud of witnesses described in Hebrews chapter 11 who are telling us something by their perseverance in faith, and we need to hear it today. Now, the reason I think it is telling rather than seeing is because in this text, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, there are five different times in this text where you will see the word commendation or commending or something like that. You see it in verse 2, you see it twice in verse 4, you see it once in verse 5, you see it once in verse 39. The whole idea of commending or commended, um, that kind of connotation. And, and again, that, that use of the root word, of the word that, that talks about witnesses, is, is a word that is a verb used in the other context in the original languages. But that context of that is one of commending or telling. The idea of that verb form is telling. They're telling something. So I really think it's telling. Another place that I would find that is in verse 4, where it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And then it says, And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The idea of telling something. There's something that the life of Abel and all the rest of these is telling us. And we need to hear it. We need to listen to it. We are surrounded by them. So hear their message. And so the question we want to ask as we look at this text then is, what are they telling us? What is it that they are saying by their lives that we should hear? That we should be aware, aware of? The first thing, and, the, and really the thing I want to center on, is this. That they are telling us by their lives of, of a concept that is incredibly important for us to get as we walk this Christian life. And that is, they are, they are helping us to understand that there is a now and not yet of the promise. I think that's what their lives understood. There was a now and not yet of the promise. One of the things, you can go back in the messages to study, but they were trusting a promise. All of these people were trusting the promise of God, which we have talked about. The promise that God would work for a people. That he would work for a people. And the ultimate work that he would do is he would redeem a people. That's what the promise was to Abraham. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. And we've talked about what that blessing is, that it centers in Christ, and you can go back and get that. But the, the point that all of them understood was that there was a now and not yet of that promise. There was a part of that promise that was happening now, but a prom- part of that promise that would be fulfilled later. And the greatest part of that was fulfilled later. Look with me down in verse 13. 
in, in the middle of this text of Hebrews chapter 11, it says, these all died in faith. And I think it would include those afterwards. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The idea of all of these people, all of these Old Testament saints, is that God had made a promise to them, a promise to be their God, and they would be his people, and he would care for his people, he would work for his people, but the ultimate work that he would do would be a blessing that would come through Abraham. And the fruition of that blessing that came through Abraham was the Messiah. He blessed Abraham. He caused his wife, Sarah, to bear a child when she was beyond childbearing age so that in the line of Abraham, because he had been blessed, he would be a blessing. And that blessing is fulfilled in Christ, who is in the line of Abraham. Christ is in the lineage of Abraham. And so the blessing was that he would have a son, and in the line of that son would come a blessing to others, and that was the Messiah, Christ. And we talked about, we won't spend a lot of time in it now, but the the thing that connects it to us here today, as we said here, the blessing for us, the way it becomes a blessing to us is that all the promises made to Abraham are ours because we can be in Abraham. Not physically in Abraham. Not many of us here have much Jewish descent, I'm, I'm certain. But we can be in Christ. That's what it means to have no condemnation. Remember the scripture? No condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ, who have received him as their savior and are united to Christ have the blessing, the blessing of no condemnation, the blessing that was promised to Abraham, that he would work for a people and his ultimate work would be to save a people. That's the promise. But they understood that that promise had a kind of temporal fulfillment and an eternal fulfillment. There's a a place for the temporal part of that, but ultimately it was an eternal fulfillment that would take place. And the ultimate fulfillment was the Messiah, was all that are in Christ will one day inherit a new heavens and a new earth. Now, it's amazing to me, it's, it's incredibly amazing to me that these Old Testament saints could understand that now and not yet principle. I, I hope you understand how amazing that is. It's because it's a gift of God, because God planted a faith in them to see something that wasn't easily discernible much more difficult in one sense for them than us. We look back and we see the fulfillment of that and I hope it makes sense to you, the fulfillment of all that promise. But they were looking ahead. They were looking ahead to this, trying to discern it. In fact, one of the evidences that it was difficult was the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees saw the promise that was made to the Jewish people as one of a kind of temporal fulfillment. It's one of the reasons they tripped over Christ. It's one of the reasons they couldn't embrace him and they ultimately put him to death because they didn't see the now and the not yet. All they could see was the now, but not the not yet part of it. They couldn't see that the ultimate promise that was given to Abraham is God was going to save a people and that salvation would center in his son. The glory of God in the face of Christ, if you will. That's, that's where it was going to be concentrated. So now as we turn the page a bit, let's talk about us. Let's talk about the church today. Let's talk about us as we hear the witness of those witnesses, as we hear what they're telling us by their faith and by their trust in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. What does that mean for us today? We need to be careful that we understand the now and the not yet. It's much more evident, I hope, to us today in the now and the not yet of the promise I said for them, but now in the kingdom. Christ has come. He has come. 2,000 years ago, he came. But the danger is that, that we don't see the now and not yet of that. He has come. The kingdom has been established in the coming of Christ, but not fully established. Let me, let me try to explain that a bit. I want you to turn to Psalm 103 and, uh, and verse 3. In the Psalms, in the in, uh, in the Old Testament, there's a promise that is spoken and given. And let me read it to you. It says there, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our iniquity. And then tagged on to that is a statement that says, and heals all our diseases. He forgives all our iniquities, but he also forgives all of our diseases. How do you put those two things together? If you get those wrong, you can get yourself in trouble. If you see all of that as coming now and not some of it coming later, you will, you will get tripped up in the Christian life. You will struggle in the Christian life. Let me go back to last week a minute and lay the ground for this, and then we'll make an application. Remember, there were three ways in Hebrews chapter 11, three different ways that God worked here. Remember, we said he, first of all, delivered by miracles. There were, there were miracles that were performed, the, the dividing of the Red Sea, the rising of, of, a, of the dead um, to life, resurrection of those who died, the woman who received back one who had died. Those were Bonafide miracles. A miracle is something outside the natural realm that happens that can only be explained by the word miracle, that God did it. It's not the natural order of things. So there were times here, and these people were commended for miracles. There were times when God worked miracles, and these that were commended for their faith and her witnesses experienced miracles in their life. And then we said there are also ways that God worked in their lives where he providentially worked. In other words, he brought circumstances to bear that brought deliverance for the people. There are circumstances here where he, uh, he didn't necessarily perform a miracle, but he caused things to happen that worked together and orchestrated together 
and providence caused deliverance. It was obvious that God's hand had been orchestrating circumstances so that people could be delivered, and they are commended there in the first two cases before we get to verse 35 and the change happens. So those were two ways that God delivered his people. The promise of the Old Testament is God will deliver a people. And as I've already said, those Old Testament people understand that all of that deliverance wasn't temporal. Some of it was eternal. Some of it spoke to an eternal deliverance. Now, there were times when he temporarily delivered them, parted the sea, led them out of Egypt, times when God worked providential circumstances to deliver them. But you can't escape the fact that there also were times, and they're still commended for their faith, when God didn't deliver them immediately. He didn't deliver them immediately. It says they were sawed in two. They were stoned. They were mocked. They were flogged. They were killed with the sword. So what about the promise of God? What about those people? What what about the promise of deliverance? And the point we made last week is that there are three ways that God delivers. It's not that God didn't fulfill his promise but that there's a third dimension of deliverance. When God promises to be the God of a people and for them to be his people, when he takes them, he sometimes can deliver by a miracle. Sometimes he can deliver by divine providence in the sense of a circumstance that may occur. But the third way that he delivers and those who were commended for it is that he gives them the sustaining grace to live for his glory, to continue to name his name, to not shake their fist at him. There's three ways God worked in this. And the reason that all were commended, the reason the scripture says that all of these, though, were commended by, for their faith, is because the third group had that kind of sustaining grace come to them that God did deliver them, and, he, and the ultimate deliverance was that they would not deny their faith and be lost, that they would inherit the promise. You see, the deliverance was about the eternal deliverance, the eternal promise for them to inherit. And the only thing that could stop that, the only thing that could stop that, and the only thing that will stop it for the Hebrew people is that they quit putting their hope there. And that was the danger of the book of Hebrews. That was the danger for these people, the very real danger for the Hebrew people. Pressure was coming on them, these Jews who had converted to Christianity. The pressure was happening. As we've said before, they were drawing apart. They were not gathering together because of the pressure, the heat that was coming on them. And the danger was that they would somehow commit apostasy, that they would turn back from trusting Christ, from trusting the Messiah, that they would go back to Judaism. And you see, in the midst of that, God did three things to keep them from doing that. Three things in the Old Testament he did. Sometimes he delivered them by miracles. He just stepped in. Sometimes he delivered them by divine providence. And sometimes he delivered them by sustaining grace. By sustaining grace. 
We need to hear that. We need to understand that. If you get too much of the kingdom too early and get the promise saying something it doesn't say, you can get yourselves in trouble. If you go back to that text where it says he forgives all our iniquities and he forgives all our diseases, here's an example of how that happens to people. Well, God forgives our sin and we shouldn't be sick. It says he heals all our diseases. How do you take a promise where it says he heals all our diseases? Well, I think you take it in the light of the now and not yet of the kingdom. That is true. He does heal all our diseases. He will heal all of our diseases. There will be a day when there is no more sickness. There will be none in the eternal fulfillment of that promise. In the temporal, I don't think we can, we can extract it that far. Are there times when he steps in? Yes. The Old Testament, he did. He performed miracles. Are there times when he works divine providence? Works through the means that are there? Yes. But not always. Not always. And even if he does, even if he does create a miracle, cause a miracle, or divine providence to protect and to deliver, it's, it's only temporal. It's only temporal. One of the things that helped me a number of years ago is in the area of what do you do when somebody comes to you as a pastor with illness? How do you pray for them? How do you pray? Should you pray for them? Should you ask God to to touch them physically and, and perform a miracle and heal them? Do something out of the natural, ordinary means and restore them to health? Should you do that? Does God still do that? My conclusion in all of that is, yes, you should. You should. Because the scripture says he heals all of our diseases. You can even trust the promise that says he heals all of our diseases. You have promised to do that, Lord. But preface it like this. Lord, you heal all of our diseases. The promise is you heal all of them. And you will. And so, Lord, might you grant today a foretaste of that ultimate healing that you're going to give. A foretaste. A foretaste. Not the fulfillment completely of it. We, we don't get that until heaven. Because even if, God, even if God heals somebody, they're going to get sick again unless he comes back and die. That's the definition of death. Your body just quits somehow. You die. So even if somebody is healed, that's not the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. He heals all of our diseases. There's there's an eternal promise. It's what the Old Testament believers were believing, that God is a God who delivers. He delivers. But understand, there are three ways he does it. He can do it that way. He can do it by circumstances. But I think the most common way that he does it is with sustaining grace. It's not nearly as uh, exciting sometimes, maybe. There's not as much fanfare about it. In fact, it's the way that most people experience God, I think, in in that way. That God just provides his sustaining grace to a people. And And the reason he does it is because the danger of our souls is to deny Christ. And so the promise of God is that he 
will not let that happen. He will ultimately save a people. He will save them. He will deliver them. And most times, I think it is by sustaining grace that he continues to give us enough grace that we do not deny him. I think that was the hope that he had for the Hebrew people. His hope was they wouldn't do that, that God would supply the sustaining grace so that they might not do that in that text, in that context. As I said last week, and the reason I wanted to come back to it this morning, the reason we've repeated some things this morning is this reason, that I think this is incredibly important to get. In fact, I think the most powerful testimony of a life of faith is people who understand this and live by it in their life. The power of sustaining grace. It's the thing, I think, that speaks to our world in ways that, as I said last week, miracles and divine providence don't. People are suspicious in our day, oftentimes, of miracles. And miracles can be counterfeited. Satan can perform miracles. So there's a chance they can be counterfeited. And even if they're genuine, there's a suspiciousness about them at times among people. And certainly there's ways in which God works in them. Or divine providence. There's ways God can work, but it's easy for us to try to see ways that aren't there. Our hearts want to do that sometimes. And other people, again, can be suspicious of of divine providence. But one of the things that resonates among people, I think, is when suffering comes to a person, to an individual, and they continue to trust their God. They continue to not deny Him. And in fact, that their love for Him grows and increases. Their joy in Him grows and increases. There's something about that that the world just can't explain away. I want you to turn with me to a passage in Colossians chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. This particular text is incredibly helpful to me in this regard. I think it's the way that God has designed the church to propagate the message. And in fact, if you will... It's the way that God calls you and I to join those witnesses, to join those witnesses and to be a witness ourselves, to tell with our lives like they told with their lives the power of sustaining grace. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. I think this text gives support to the idea that God's greatest way of working is in the sustaining of his saints in the midst of suffering. Now, granted, in this Old Testament account of Hebrews chapter 11, it's talking about persecution. It's talking about direct persecution upon those people, those who inflicted 
suffering upon them because of what they believed. And they didn't cave in. They stayed true to it. And I think there may come a day when we face that in America. I'm, I'm not a prophet and I'm not a doomsdayer and I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it just seems that more and more we are moving to a place where it's going to get less and less popular to name the name of Christ. That may be a good thing. That may be a purifying thing to the church. I hope God will give reprieve that that doesn't happen. But the question you might ask yourself is, will I stand true? Would I stand true if the sword were about to take me? And my response to that is this. You won't unless you're learning to practice it now. You're learning to understand how to respond to suffering now in our world. You don't have to encounter suffering with persecution to encounter it. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that is fractured. And so when I'm talking about here, and I'm going to look at this text, when Paul's talking about his sufferings, he certainly is talking about persecution, but I think it goes beyond that. I think, I think it goes to the point of what you are facing in your life today. At the point at which this broken world is pricking you and poking you today, are you experiencing the sustaining grace of God to not shake your fist at him in the midst of it? Is God real enough to you and supplying the strength to continue to name his name and to honor him? It's interesting in this text, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings because it's doing something. And I think one of the ways that we are able to sustain our faith in the midst of it is realize that it's, it's purposeful. In other words, Paul said, in my flesh, I'm filling up something that's lacking in Christ's afflictions. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Certainly, if there's something lacking in regards to the gospel, if he didn't finish the work, we can't finish it. If it has to do with the atonement of us having our sin forgiven and something that caused our sin to be forgiven, we can't add to that. So there must be a different way in which Paul is looking at this, that we are making up and filling up what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions, Christ's suffering. What is it? What are we we filling up? What What are we doing in addition to that? And I believe what we're doing here and what Paul was doing is he was being a witness to the reality of God, to the reality of Christ and what Christ suffered. In other words, when Christ was on earth, he suffered. But there came a point at which that suffering concluded and he went to be at the right hand of the Father and is there today. That's what Hebrews talked about. He's interceding for his church. He's praying that you would continue to be faithful, praying for you. He's not here. What's lacking? The personal presentations of the suffering of Christ to the world. Isn't, isn't readily seen in daily activity today. It's seen in the scriptures. You can go there and read about it. But what Paul was doing was he was actually modeling it to the world. I think that Christ suffered in the flesh as a man, fully man, 
in the power that God provided him, the strength that God the Father provided him. He didn't depend on his, on his divine nature to somehow suffer. If, if he could somehow, we've talked about this before, pull out the God card, then he had advantage. But the scripture says he was made like us in every way. He suffered as a man. And so how do we make up what's lacking? We walk in his steps. We're willing to, to do the same, to walk that path that he walked in the same way that he walked it, by depending on the power of God to strengthen us through the Holy Spirit. I think Jesus did it by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by his divine nature, but the power of the third person of the Trinity who empowered him just like he's to empower us and strengthen us as believers. And the scripture says, we make up what is lacking, the personal presentation of that the world. So when suffering comes into our life, whether it's persecution, direct a front because of we're naming the name of Christ or suffering just comes to us because we live in a world where the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We live in a world that is broken. How do we respond to that? How do we do it to the glory of God? How do we do it without denying our God and casting blame upon him? We do it, as scripture says, in this text in Hebrews chapter 11, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to him look to his example and the power of that is enormous there is power in a miracle a bona fide miracle there is power in the providence of God to deliver his people but when the world looks upon one who they know is suffering who does not deny their God in fact trusts their God and rests in their God and relies upon their God and knows that one day all of these diseases will be healed and looks to that hope, looks to the, as we'll talk about next week, the joy set before them as Jesus looked for the joy set before him. There's a power in that. There's an incredible power in that. So this morning, I would ask you, where are you at in this walk of faith? Where do you reside? What place is it found in your life? And, and the ultimate question is, are you telling the world in the midst of it that God is real? It's an incredible opportunity to, to, to broadcast to the world the reality of God as we walk with him, as we trust him in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of things poking us. I believe that's why all of these people were commended. They were commended because they continued to trust their God, the sustaining grace of God in their lives. I'm going to pray with you this morning, and as we pray, the worship team's going to come, and we're going to sing together, but let's pray first. Father, I pray that you will help us this morning. I pray that that all of us in this room who are experiencing difficulty, it, it comes in lots of different ways. It can, come, it can come by emotional difficulties. It can come by physical difficulties. It can come by circumstances that are pressing in upon us. But Lord, how do we respond to that? 
How do we see it in our lives? Do we see it as an opportunity to show the world and to broadcast to the world the reality of God, a God who sustains, a God who is there, who helps us in the midst of it? Lord, I pray to the degree that which it causes us to to grumble and to want to lift our fist at you, that you would help us. And that, Lord, we would be people who would join that great cloud of witnesses. That, that, Lord, we would be determined to join that cloud of witnesses and take our place there. The scripture, interestingly, says to us that um, the reason, Lord, that that, uh, we're still in it is because they weren't going to inherit that promise apart from us, that we were going to do it together. So there's still places to take as witnesses telling. Help us to take our place, Father, till all are in, till all have come in who God has promised to deliver. Lord, help us. Help us to be people who live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like for us to sing that song that we sang last week by faith. Let's stand together. By faith we see the hand of God And the light of creation's grand design In the lives of those who prove His faithfulness Who walk by faith and not by sight By faith our fathers roam the earth With the power of His promise in their hearts Of a holy city built by God's own where peace and justice reign. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on Him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. By faith the prophets saw a day When the Lord for Messiah would appear With the power to break the chains of sin and death And rise triumphant from the grave We will stand as children of the promise Fix our eyes on Him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. Another way to look at this is those witnesses are gathered around is that they are cheering us on. They're cheering us on to continue to trust your God, trust his grace. The question for us is, are we cheering others on? 
Are you cheering others on to believe and to faith by the way you experience life and how you embrace it? I hope so. Here it is me.